Awesome. Well, good morning. Perfect song for what we're going to be getting into. We're going to be in Titus chapter 1. Thank you. So you can go ahead and turn there, Titus chapter 1. And this was a pretty cool week of crew. How many of you were here this past week, at least for one night of crew, and got to see some of the stuff? Okay, a lot of you got some cool decorations. You, most of the stuff is pool noodles. I don't know how they made that, but that's pretty cool. Some cool stuff. And as I pulled up this morning, maybe some of you saw them. I came here at about 7.15 a.m. and I saw the middle schoolers out on the bottom parking lot. They were just kind of praying together before they went off. So uh, they're on their way right now, so be praying for them and thinking about them. But uh, let's jump right into the text this morning, Titus 1, and I'm going to read verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 16. <clears throat> for there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of the creed's own prophets said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes or beasts, lazy gluttons. This saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith <coughs> and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and probably the worst part, unfit for doing anything that's good. So as we read through that, I want to bring your attention to something that I have in my hand here. So this, this is a Bible. <laughs> And this is a very important Bible to me. It was up in my closet, and I dug it out. It has a lot of memories attached to this Bible. I received this Bible as a gift shortly before I preached my first ever sermon. So it kind of has this special, uh, special place for me. Uh, I was a junior in high school when my youth pastor let me speak in front of, in front of the, the high school uh, group there, in front of our youth group. And so I used this Bible to do that. Uh, shortly after that, my senior pastor allowed me to speak in what was called Big Church. I don't know if that's... I've heard a few people say that around here. This, this, this is big church, right? All the big people come to this. So I got to use this, this very Bible when I preached in big church. To this day, I think my senior pastor regrets doing that because after I was done, I sat on the front row and he got up before we were dismissed and he clarified things for about eight minutes. I, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I was sitting there thinking, I think he disagrees with something I said. But anyway, no, nonetheless, I, I use this Bible for that. So I have a lot of memories attached to it because of that. Uh, not long after that, I went off to college and uh, to my undergrad studies, and I took this Bible with me. And so during college, of course, I was in Bible studies. I, I read this, this, this very book daily, uh, or, or tried to daily at least. Uh, I was able to, to teach and preach. I had some opportunities in college to use this Bible. I got to travel in a ministry one summer, and I took this Bible. So this has, this has a, lot of, a lot of memories attached to it. Now, it, it is a little worn out, I'll give you that. I mean, if you look at the binding of it, it looks like it's kind of shredded a little bit. If you can see, those of you near the front, I have a paper clip here because all the back pages are starting to come out. And honestly, the binding's kind of given up. I lay it down and it doesn't try to close or anything. It just kind of you know, lays there. It's been beaten up a little bit. But there was a, a day in which I put this Bible down and I picked up a different Bible. And it's not because it's too worn out. I mean, it's still got some use in it. I set that down and picked up a different Bible because of three letters that appear on the binding of this Bible. Now, I would show you, but none of you would be able to see it from here. I'll just, I'll just read off those three letters. Those three letters are K, J, and V. Now, some of you may know, have no idea what that means. Others of you know very well what that means. Those letters stand for the King James Version of the Bible. 
And when I was coming up and growing up in church, this was a, this was a very important issue, especially in my church. And so when I went to college, for instance, this particular version of the Bible was, was a very, very big deal. To the extent that you were not allowed to own or have a different version of the Bible, the NIV is what uh, I just read from and so forth, you could not have a different version of the Bible in your dorm or even on campus. And when I finished up my undergraduate studies, the last step was to pass what they called an oral examination. It was like the, it was like the final, the end of, the end of, end of schooling test, and, and each student, each senior had to sit down across from two professors in the college and they could drill you on, on whatever they wanted to. I mean, some guys went through two hours of this. Mine was a little over an hour. And, and they just asked me question after question about my life, my, my, my future ministry, my, my beliefs, and, and, and all these things. And this, this always came up. The KJV, this always came up. And if you answered, if they asked you, what is the version of the Bible that you're going to use and to preach and teach in your ministry? If you did not say KJV, you were not getting a diploma. I mean, I, I, this, was just, this was just how it went. I said yes. So I got my diploma. <coughs> I got my diploma, and a few months after that, uh, I, I had just been married at that point. We married a, a week after I graduated, and, and Anna graduated. And so we moved to Indiana, and we actually loaded up in my, my large, dark purple Concord. We called it the boat. And so we loaded up in that, and we drove to North Carolina, where I grew up, back to the church where, where I, I, I was raised in. I, I decided to follow Jesus at that church. I was baptized at that church. Uh, you know, this was my church that I had grown up in, and I was going to be ordained by the pastor and some of the other people there. And so I sat down. I had my nicest suit on, and I'm sweating bullets. I'm, I'm as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs, just trying to answer these guys' questions, because there's this long table, I'm, I'm sitting at the, at the head of the table, there's my senior pastor who I'd grown up with, uh, Dr. Max Barton, uh, and, and, and so there's the, the members of the board of the church all around the table, there's probably a dozen guys in there, a couple of ordained ministers, and, and again, they are drilling me with question after question, I'm just sweating bullets, my knees are knocking beneath the table, I'm trying to answer these questions right. I finally get to the end, and I think, I think I passed this thing. My senior pastor, I I'm not making this up, he leans down, he's sitting right next to me, he leans down, he picks up my ordination paperwork. It's a manila binder, he, he pulls out a slip of paper, this is my ordination certificate, and he lays it on the table. He looks over the ordination paperwork, he scans down the page until he finds where the spot is in which he is supposed to sign. Then he reaches over, he picks up a pen, he grips the pen as if he is ready to begin writing, he leans over to write his name and he hesitates, he pauses. And he looks up at me, and he looks me right in the eye, and he says, Nick, what version of the Bible are you going to use for your preaching and teaching? And I looked him right back in the eye and into the intimidating eyes of my pastor, and I said, sir, I use the King James Version. And the room erupted with the noise of the Gaither vocal band, and it was just... <coughs> okay, the Gaither vocal band stuff is, is not true. However, the rest of the story is completely true. And completely accurate. This was, this was a major deal. Now I left here, and of course I, I, I followed on with this preference. I followed this on with, with this 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 uh, this attachment to the King James Version in this first church. My, my first job out of college, my first opportunity to be a pastor. And I began to realize that the attenders of this church, of course, they hadn't grown up listening to this, so, so the wording was kind of difficult for them, and, and they had a difficulty understanding the things that I was teaching. Oftentimes, in fact, I would come across across phrases and words very often that. It just didn't mean the same thing. The word that was translated back in the 1700s, which is when this edition was finished, just didn't mean the same thing that the word means today. And there were phrases that didn't make sense, translations that I had. I felt like I was retranslating some things that had already been translating into English, and it was just a disconnect for people in the church. 
I picked a, a certain camp for the teenagers to go to to camp that year. And one of the requirements for the camp, it was in the paperwork, the liabilities, all the stuff you got to uh, sign as parents, was that they had to bring a copy of a, a King James Version with them to this camp. And that actually ran into some issues with a family that the, the daughters had been coming to our church. They were teenagers coming to the youth group. Nobody in the family was a Christian uh, or a believer. They did, however, have a Bible that had been passed down from a grandma or something in the house. And I remember going to the house to get the paperwork from the mom. And she was asking me, now it's talking about this, this King James Bible. I don't, I don't think I have one of those. And it just honestly became an unnecessary conversation. And it got a bit heated because why doesn't, why doesn't my Bible work? And it just, it, 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 there was just tension there that didn't need to be there, uh, to be honest with you. In addition, I, I could share other stories too. There was this middle-aged couple in the church that had a lot of difficulty reading. And if you have difficulty reading, don't read something from the 1700s. I mean, so it was just... <coughs> It just became an unnecessary barrier and stumbling block for people. The worst story, (coughs) excuse me, the worst story that I can tell is this. There was a day in which there was a young man in the church who he and his brothers and his whole family had had come to the church uh, since I'd been there. They had all become Christians. I I got to baptize all of them in a river. It It was an exciting day. But a little while after that, I was teaching a group of them. And this young man, he brought up this issue and he referred to people who use other versions in a derogatory, in a a demeaning way. And I saw, I saw myself in him and and I had to pause for a second because, well, well, wait a second. He has taken this thing and it's become a matter of, of pride for him. Because I use, I use the Bible that's tough to understand. It was, it was this matter of pride for him. And and there was this arrogance that seeped out of him. And I realized that, wait a second, I, I taught him this. This is, he's, this is me talking. And it took a long time for me to finally fade away from this. But there was a day in which I took this preference you could call it and I I set it aside and I picked up a different version of the Bible for that reason I realized that I had taken a personal preference and I had elevated it to the status of an essential and problems always happen when we take a preference and turn it into an essential problems always happen when we take a preference and elevate it to an essential have any of you had this happen to you before? Have any of you had someone else uh, uh, impose one of their preferences on you? Have you ever felt this tension before? <clears throat> it can be any matter of things. <clears throat> I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is July 4th and, and, and politics when it comes to the church. So maybe, maybe you've bumped into people who they have this strong attachment that if you're a Christian, you have to be highly patriotic and yada, yada. And, or maybe it's the other end. If you're a Christian, you swear allegiance to Jesus Christ and him alone. You can't be proud to be an American or Russian or whatever it is. Either side, maybe you felt like you were in the middle. You didn't really care either way, but man, they were trying to impose some kind of preference on you and they were taking a preference and making it into an essential. I mean, or let's just take a different holiday. Let's take Halloween, for instance. Uh, you know, if you're a Christian, you can't celebrate Halloween because of satanic roots and da-da-da. Or, or, or maybe it was the other end. It was, if you're a Christian, you should celebrate Halloween because this is a good way to engage your culture and the community around you. And, and, and you were in the middle. You didn't really carry the way. But, man, they were trying to push this agenda on you, push that preference, push that opinion on you as if, as if you have to follow this if you're a Christian. And it was as if they took a preference and elevated it to the status of an essential and it can be any number of things, like alcohol versus abstinence. It can be the certain way that someone ought to dress when it comes to modesty. It can be something about a TV show or music that you should or should not consume. Maybe it was a debate about, you know, when your kids are growing up, should you go to public school or homeschool or Christian school or maybe when you were a kid? I mean, it can be any number of things. But, but problems always happen when we take a preference and elevate it to a essential. It always, problems always come from that. Now, I realize... 
that I've heard a recurring story from many of you as I've gotten to know you over the past one and a half, two years. And many of you have been deeply hurt by this thing that we call legalism. Maybe you had parents that had this strict moral code that, that, that they imposed on you and it was, you felt like it was unfair. Maybe you went to a school or high school, undergrad school, and these things were imposed on you. Maybe it was a church background that you came out of. And, and, and to be honest, maybe there's some bitterness still there. Maybe, maybe there's a hesitancy to, to submit to authority. I mean, some of these things creep up against you and you just can't let it go. Some of you have been deeply hurt by this in the past. Problems always happen when we take a preference and turn it into an essential. And so this is what we're going to look at and see in this text here. Look at Titus 1. Let's just read that first verse again, verse 10, as we launch into this. <coughs> For there are many rebellious people, he says in verse 10, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision party. So we're reading about this church in uh, the, the island of Crete where Titus has been sent by Paul the Apostle Paul, to establish these churches and establish elders and, and good leadership and, and good practices in these churches. And there's this group of people, especially those, especially a subset of those groups called the, those of the circumcision party. Now, these are formerly Jews, and Jesus has come, and they have decided to follow Jesus, and they have converted to, to following Jesus. They accept Jesus as the Messiah. However, there's these old purity laws. In fact, you can read about it in the first you know, quarter or, or one-third of your Bible, the Old Testament Torah. There's, there's these purity laws in which they still feel that everyone should submit to these laws. Yes, I know I've been saved by Jesus. However, I should still follow those laws. Some people call them the Judaizers, okay? And they were causing some issues. Now, <coughs> excuse me, realize some of the history that comes from this. The Jewish religion had been around for a long time. And this Jewish religion was distinct from every other religion in many ways, but primarily this, it was in how their God was distinctly different from all other gods. In fact, he had this attribute, this, this character trait about him that was different from every other God, and this was it, that God is holy. What that means is he is distinct. He is set apart. He is different. He is devoted. He, he, is, he is wholly other from any other God. And this otherness, this distinctness, this differentness, this holiness is supposed to carry on to other people. Be holy because I am holy. This is what God says in his word in the book of Leviticus and in a few other places. And so these people had these purity laws that they had to finish in which they had to be distinctly different from other people. There were things that other people ate that they could not eat. There were clothing that other people could wear that they could not wear. But most notably was that the men who followed this religion, they followed Judaism and the Old Testament law, they had to mutilate their body in a way in which they were, they, they, they were marking themselves officially as being a Jew and being devoted to, to our God, to Yahweh. It was a form of ceremoniously cutting off the Gentile impurity and removing that and saying, I am, I am branding myself as a follower of Yahweh. And of course, these Jews, when Jesus comes along, he's the fulfillment of the law. We are made pure by him. We are not made pure by following all these purity laws. And, but, but, but if you've grown up in this and your ancestors and forefathers have followed all those laws, I mean, how can you just, you, there's no switch. You can't just turn this off. And so they are starting to impose this on other people and saying, hey, listen, I know you've come in. I know you used to worship Zeus. I'm glad you've been baptized. I'm glad you decided to follow Jesus now. There's some other things that you need to do. And they begin to impose these rules on the other people, and it became a major problem. In fact, here's what he says in verse 11, or verse 10, that they were disrupting entire households by what they were teaching. Problems always happen when we turn preferences into essentials. Because, look, they could have followed the purity laws. That would have been fine, and many of them did. They continued following the purity laws. But the problems happened when they began to say, others have to follow these additional rules 
as well as us. <coughs> this, is, uh, this is the response that Paul gives in verse 11. He says, they must be silenced, done. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching what they ought not to teach. And here's what we're going to see. Legalism is disruptive. Legalism is disruptive. Now, I'll say this. When I mention legalism, I am not saying that you can't take a stand for anything. All right? I can't stand up in here and say, you know what? I love three women. That's my preference. You love one woman. That's, you know what? This is just a different vote. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. I mean, God's plan for marriage and monogamy is pretty clear. We're talking about matters of preference. Some of the examples that I had mentioned earlier in this sermon. <coughs> Legalism is essentially when I'm trying to gain God's favor by being better, by being more holy, by, by doing good things and by, by performing for him. I'm trying to gain God's favor. And the natural outcome of that is that I want to impose that on other people. I mean, after all, I'm working hard up here. I haven't celebrated Halloween and had Halloween candy in eight years. You shouldn't either, right? I'm, I mean, I want to police others. I want you to follow my rules too. I'm working hard up here. This, this is the natural tendency that we follow when our conscience has a stronger appeal than other people. So legalism is disruptive. There's, th- there's three ways that, I, ways that I found that legalism is destructive. Here's the first one. It's condemning. It makes others feel like they're second class, like they're, like they're a before photo, like they're playing the junior varsity league. It, it makes people feel like they can't quite match up to what other people are doing. And some of you, again, have been deeply hurt by this. You've, you've been looked down upon, and this has created bitterness that continues into the present day and, and, and a resistance to authority and, and learning anything new. And this causes problems that last for a long time. Now, I don't want to pick on my college too much because I learned a lot of good things there, but, boy, it got real sometimes. So in my, in my, in my college where I grew up, every day we had to wear a suit and tie and had to have your, your shirt pressed and everything, and, 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 and this dress code was strictly enforced. In fact, one day I remember attending uh, daily, at, at, it was a Christian college, so we had a chapel service every day. I remember coming out of a chapel service one day, and there were grown men stationed at the exits of all the, the, of all the exits of this chapel. And as the guys came out, the girls could go on. I don't know why, but, but, but the guys had to be stopped and they would hold their hands up and they were doing a surprise sideburn check. And so I walked up and I stand up straight and he looks over and he, you know, if it's hanging over the ears, you got to go fix this immediately or you get this, you know, horrible demerit slip. And, and it became this big deal. We, you know, we had to have all these things uh, checked off and our dorm room had to be completely pristine. We had to fix our beds. This is not a military school. This is a regular college. And, you know, beds had to be pristinely made and the floors vacuumed and the showers and the bathrooms cleaned <coughs> every single morning. And the dean of students and his henchmen, I mean other employees, would come into the dorm rooms and, and they would inspect all the dorm rooms and, and, and they would write these demerit slips based on how, how clean your room is or how unclean it was. To, the, to this extent, there was one night where a man who was an ex-Marine, I do know this, he, he came into our dorm at 11 o'clock at night and went dorm to dorm checking rooms. And I tell you, my mama would have been so proud of my room, but this guy, he was going to find something. He comes in, everything looks good. He's snooping around trying to find something that's out of place. You know, no, the books are all up, the beds are all made. It's 11 o'clock at night for crying out loud. He goes over <coughs> to my dresser. He pulls the dresser drawers open. He pulls one open and says, hey, whose dresser drawer is this? Uh, mine, sir. <laughs> it's, it's mine. And he begins to lecture me on how I have not properly folded my underwear. Dude, my undies? And there, and there, was, there was always a Bible verse attached, you know, 1 Corinthians, let all things be, all things be done decently and in order. And, I mean, sometimes they had to do some serious exegetical gymnastics to get these to, to fit. But, but, but there was always a Bible verse attached, and, you know, it's, it's related to how godly and how much you care about Jesus. And, and it was... 
I know I'm making light of this, but the truth is some of us have been very hurt by these kind of things in the past, and we have felt demoralized and we have felt condemned because of legalism. Legalism is condemning, and it can make it hard to move on sometimes. <clears throat> Problems always happen when we turn a preference into an essential. You can fold your underwear any way you want. It's fine. It's fine. Number two, legalism is consuming. And what I mean by that is it is time-consuming. It is commitment-consuming, right? Because in verse 10, he says they are full of meaningless talk. I mean, in some sense, they are teaching heresy, and he even points out towards the end, it looks like they're, it looks like they're not even really Christians. They're Jews following Old Testament laws, not Christians following Jesus, and they don't appear to be saved or born again or whatever word you want to use there. They, they don't appear to be really actually Christians, but even when they're not teaching what we would say is heresy, they're just, it's just meaningless stuff. It's like going to your small group and somebody busts open Deuteronomy and starts talking about, well, these animals chew the cud, and you're thinking, what are we talking about, Right? I don't have to follow that law anymore. It's condemning. It's time-consuming. Number three, it's corrupting. See, here's the ironic part. Legalism doesn't only affect other people negatively. It's disruptive for yourself if you're a legalist. Look at what he says in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. (coughs) He's referring to the purity laws of the Old Testament. We don't follow that anymore. Jesus has made us pure, not the laws. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. (coughs) Excuse me. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. You get the sense in which their conscience has been overstimulated. And that's beginning to cause problems within their own mind and conscience. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. It's as if there's this this pride piece that's attached. Hey, I know God, and it it becomes a matter of pride that I follow this rule. I know you don't, but, (laughs) well, it becomes this matter of pride, right? They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. Problems always happen. Say it with me. When we turn a preference into an essential. Problems always happen. Now let me take a break from all this and let's just just take a break from legalism for a minute because I want to talk about you, not the Judaizers. Let's talk about you for a minute. Here's the question that hopefully all of us are are asking ourselves. How do I know if a preference is a preference or an essential? I mean, my conscience is bothered by something and yours isn't. I think mine's right. I mean, you should be... I, how, come, how come you can watch that TV show, but I feel guilty watching it? I mean, how do, how do I know if my preference is a preference or actually an essential that all people <coughs> should follow? It's, it's nearly impossible to know that. The text gives us two clues as to how we can know if our preference is a preference or if it's actually an essential that all Christians should follow. This is, this is not the end of the story. There's more to it. But here's two clues that come directly from the text. The first one appears in verse 10. It's the very first word. What's the very first word in verse 10? Four, he's pointing us back. It's, it's a preposition. He's pointing us back to what happened earlier in the text. Pastor George is sitting right up here. He taught last week on establishing elders in the church. We're to establish these guys in the church who, they live out the kind of Christian morality that we want all people to follow. This, if I'm looking for a model, if I'm looking for an example of what it means to follow Jesus, I should be able to look to, to, to a certain group of people. The elder board is, is, is what he established in the early parts of, of Titus 1. I should be able to look at these guys and, and they're my standard. And he says, part of the reason... Why these guys are established is because, or for, there are false teachers who are turning legalism into a stumbling block for all of the people. This, this is part of the reasons why the elders exist. And so here's my first clue. If the elders aren't all about it, <coughs> perhaps I shouldn't be all about it. I know there's this, 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 this you know, motivating moment of, I'm the only one standing up for something right, which is good. But if I'm the only one up here, I should be wondering, where is everybody, Right? 
I should be able to look to some people, especially in this case, the elders, for that kind of counsel. And there's a piece of this story that I forgot to tell you with this KJV thing. When I first went to this church, they knew that I used the KJV. They didn't know how, how uh, fanatical I was about it. But they actually told me when I first came on board, they said, Nick, we, we strongly recommend that you try to use a different version because there's, there's people in the church that they're, just, they're not used to that. They didn't grow up with that. Multiple times, they strongly encouraged me. They didn't enforce it or, or have a hard line, but they strongly encouraged me. And man, I dug my heels in and I refused to compromise. I was arrogant and I was foolish and I caused problems that shouldn't have existed because of my arrogance, because I took a preference and made it into an essential. And I'll tell you this right now, I learned my lesson. If there ever comes a day where I'm sitting around, <coughs> I get the privilege of, of, of uh, being part of the elder board meetings. If I ever get to the point where I'm sitting around that room of guys and they tell me that I need to back off on something, you're not going to tell me twice, man. I'm getting off that hobby horse faster than a knife fight in a phone booth. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I think about North Carolina, it just comes back. I don't know. I just, but yeah, I'm, I'm backing off. If these, if these guys say that I'm, uh, there, there's counsel there, right? And I can say this, and, I'm, and nobody, nobody paid me to say this, but the guys on our board right now, I have the utmost respect for them. And I would listen to them, especially the collective voice. I believe the voice of God in some ways comes out because of the collective voice of the elders. There's, there's something about that in which God speaks through community. And this is the leadership he's established in the church and the, and the governing model that we follow. And I have utmost respect for these guys. And I'll say this too, every, every single one of the guys on the board right now, or their wives, they, they are more than willing to talk to you, to hear from you. They want to hear from you. And Mark's sitting over here. I, I, I think I saw David back here. Th- these guys, they want to hear from you. In fact, every single week on a Sunday, if you ever have a question about maybe what's a preference or an essential or <coughs> something that's important to you that the church isn't you know, highlighting enough or taking a stance on, just, just go and ask one of these guys. Every Sunday we have an elder on call. One of the ways you can identify them is they have an unusually large lanyard around their neck. Kind of a running joke on the board there. But hey, if you go to the hub, you can ask for whoever the elder on call is. You can talk to them. You can email these guys. They are happy to listen to you. And, and they listen to these kind of things all the time. And we talk about these things all the time. In fact, to the extent that I think there's actually an aging component to being an elder on the board. I think when you enter being on the elder board, there's a six-year process to you rotate off. And I think it actually ages you. See, I was looking at some pictures of the three guys that are rotating off this month. We have three guys rotating. I was looking at before and after photos, and I, don't, I just want to show you. I just want to see if you guys agree with this. So here's David Kraft. I think I saw it. David, are you back here? Raise your hand. I thought I saw him. Maybe he skipped church today. So <laughs> I could have sworn I saw him. Maybe he stepped out. So this is David Kraft. This was taken before he came on the elder board. I want to show you a picture that was taken just a week ago here. I, <clears throat> I don't know. That's a lot of wrinkles and white hair for six years. I, I don't know. Would you guys agree? So here, here's another photo. Here's a photo of John Harms. A lot of you know John. He was here. Man, he, was, he put in, I don't know how many hours at crew. And so uh, he's worked very hard. A lot of you know John. So again, this is a picture of him before he joined the elder board. Here's one, a more recent photo. <laughs> <coughs> he almost looks like the guy from Mary Tyler Moore now, doesn't he? I, I don't know. Just, okay, here, here's the last one. So Kerry Tenhues, and he usually, I don't know, he might be in here too. So Kerry Tenhues, and this, this is a picture, again, taken before he joined the elder board six years ago. Here's a very recent photo of him taken. <coughs> I don't know. He just looks stressed, doesn't he? I, he just looks stressed out. Thankfully, these guys are going to get off the board, and they're going to get some rest, and maybe in 10 years or so, we're asking them to join again. But uh, I, think, I think you just die out at that point. I don't know. But, but hey, no, in, in all seriousness, I know we're joking, but, but these guys are more than happy to hear you out. 
And they'll even bring something to the board if they think it's something they should just hash around with the other guys. And, and we're happy to hear you out. So here's one clue. How do, I know, how do I know if this is just a preference or this is an essential that everybody should follow? Well, if the elders aren't all about it, I should... I mean, I can follow it myself, but, but I don't need to impose that preference on others. Here's a second clue. It's creating more... <coughs> it's creating more drama than it's doing good. And this is the most haunting part of the text. Look at verse 16. These Judaizers, these legalists, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and here's the part that haunts me. They're unfit for doing anything good. They can't do any good. They can only, they can only disrupt. They can't do anything good. And it's haunting. I don't want to be that guy that can't, I can't do good because I got letters, three letters that are a barrier for me actually accomplishing good in the church and in my community. <laughs> so this text reminds me of this guy that, that I went to high school with. His name was Tim. So Tim and I went to high school together. He was a couple years older than me. <clears throat> and Tim had parents. He had, he had several siblings, I think five or six kids total in the family. And his parents had more strict or stricter rules in place for their kids than, most other, than any other kid that I knew when it came to dating and uh, just, just having a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. And so here, here was their rule. Their rule was that you cannot date or go on dates or go steady, whatever the phrase was at that time. You can't hold hands. You can't touch, can't kiss, any of that until you go to college. That was their rule. Now, that, that, I mean, that was a more strict rule than, than anybody else in my high school and, and then for me. And by the way, it was really unfortunate for Tim because he was very attractive. He was a muscular guy. He was athletic. He was smart. I'm pretty sure every girl in the high school had a crush on this guy. And by the way, he was just a, he was just a good guy. I don't think I ever heard Tim say a negative thing about anybody else for the, I think, three years I was in high school with him. I don't think I heard him say a negative thing about anybody. He was just a good guy. Everybody liked him. Nobody disliked him. The teachers thought he was like an angel or something. I mean, he was, he was just a good guy. <clears throat> but this was the standard. And all the girls in my school, like I said, had a crush on this guy. To this extent, <clears throat> our school was having a banquet one season. And I wanted to ask Katie to go, this girl named Katie in my class, to go to the banquet with me. So I went up to her, <coughs> sorry for the coughing, a couple weeks before this banquet, and I asked her, I said, hey, Katie, will you go to the banquet with me? And she said yes, but I kid you not, this is what she said. She said, I know Tim's not going to ask me, so I'll go with you. She said this out loud. I'm not. <coughs> but you know what? I got a date with Katie, and Tim went by himself, so the joke's on him. You know what? That's. That's fine with me. <coughs> but Tim had this rule that was, that was set up by his parents. And I tell you what, this is what, I, this is what I just absolutely love about Tim. He didn't make a big deal of this. He didn't walk around complaining about the standard that was put on him. He, he didn't walk around <coughs> you know, upset at other people because I can't believe you get to date and that's not fair. And he, he didn't shove it in other people's face. You know, this hand has never held the hand of another sophomore girl. I'm saving this hand for marriage. I mean, he didn't do any of that. He didn't flaunt himself. He didn't become arrogant or judgmental towards other people. He just stayed right in the middle. He didn't make a big deal of it. If someone had a looser standard than him, that's fine. I'm right here. If someone had a more strict preference, that's fine. He's right here. He just stayed right in the middle. Didn't make a deal of it at all. In fact, the only reason I know that his parents had this rule is because he had a brother who really didn't like the rule. But Tim, Tim never made a big deal of it. And it just got me thinking, what if, what if our entire, what if Hershey Free Church, what if all of us were, were like Tim and we just didn't make a big deal of what our conscience says against us when it comes to these matters of preference or opinion? I mean, what kind of community, church community would this be 
if we refuse to judge those who have a more loose standard than us? What would this church community be if we refuse to become arrogant towards those who have a more strict view than we do? What kind of community would this be if we refuse to squabble over disputable matters? What, what kind of church could this be if we just, just right in the middle, you have a more strict standard, a looser standard, that's fine, I'm, I'm right here. What, what kind of community could this be? What kind of encouragement and unity could there be in this church? I'd encourage all of us to be like Tim. By the way, Tim is happily married today. He can hold hands anytime he wants. And I hope for us to be like Tim. Well, Hershey Free Church, today you are being sent to showcase Jesus, not to showcase your personal preferences. You are not dismissed today. You are sent. Thank you for your attention.